Hello, and welcome to another episode of AgTech So What, brought to you by Tenacious Ventures. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. When we set out to do an episode about the unconventional ways that startups and corporates work together in the AgTech space, I didn't anticipate how useful the skills of a former U.S. Marine pilot could be to a $4 billion global ag input giant that's striving to stay on the cutting edge of innovation. It was a big change going from defense to agriculture. Really steep learning curve there, learning about the differences in the type of aviation and the mentality of, of those pilots found that they're not really that much different. They just do different stuff. That's Kevin McDonald, VP of Customer and Government Relations at Guardian Agriculture, a company that's in the middle of a multi-million dollar partnership with Wilbur Ellis, who's using Guardian's autonomous drones as part of its spraying fleet that's applying crop protection chemicals in California's Salinas Valley this season. We invited Kevin on to talk more about the deal and to share Guardian's experience partnering with the corporate in a way that goes beyond simply investment or acquisition. But first, a little more about Kevin. He started his career as a military aviator and later went into defense contracting before he landed a gig in the ag space. But I'll let him pick up the story from here. When that got old, I came back to the U.S. and was able to, through some mutual acquaintance, land a, a role with Wilbur Ellis to run their aerial business at the national level, just bring it all under one business unit, bring in some safety practices and integrate technology in, into their lines of business. I did that for a couple of years and found out about Guardian through Wilbur Ellis. <clears throat> and in 2020, left Wilbur Ellis and joined the Guardian team. That was a better fit for me long-term. Wilbur Ellis is a really strong company, a great company to work for. After a couple of years working for them, they didn't really need that much from me anymore. And I saw an opportunity here to really build a business and get back to what I loved about the Marine Corps, which was a small group of people working very hard to make something a reality that's very challenging and having to remain flexible and adapt to new situations. It's just been an awesome two and a half years with Guardian Agriculture. And coincidentally enough, Wilbur Ellis came on as a investor and customer. We went under contract just over a year after I came over, and we are now fielding systems with them in California. So were you on the Wilbur Ellis side for the initial investment and then they invested, or how did the timeline unfold and how, how did that kind of work for you in, in being on both sides? No, they hadn't made the investment yet when I left. Guardian had been pursuing Wilbur Ellis and others for a couple of years. So I was familiar with them from pretty much the time I came on in late 2018, early 2019, and was talking to other companies as well, trying to figure out what their technology looked like, what their strengths and weaknesses were. And I think the round was closed with Wilbur Ellis on board about a month after I came on board with Guardian. So it was in the works. And then the purchase agreement was just over a year after being with Guardian. We'll unpack that a little bit because I want to talk about the sort of startup corporate collaboration, but tell us a little bit more about Guardian Ag. What was the original mission and vision and where are you guys up to today? Yeah, Adam Burkew, our CEO, grew up in an aviation business. His father, they were associated with ag pilots that would fly down to South America and most of them would come back. It's a dangerous business. They also did some lifelight stuff. And Adam is a big robotics guy. He was on the BattleBots circuit for a long time. I believe he was a national champion. And he got together with some of his buddies that 
we're doing battle bots and much, much larger, like the battle bots is just a fun little thing. Uh, but they were building robots that were huge car crushing, flame throwing for startup CEO party type stuff. But he was also working on a bunch of other projects to include electric racing motorcycles, working on designing batteries for them. And the team saw an opportunity with what drones were doing in Asia and what we were using them for in the U.S., which is essentially they saw a use for something other than a flying selfie stick. And at that time, a lot of push into urban air mobility, not really a whole lot in agriculture other than what the Chinese had started for smallholder farms in Asia, right? And those, they weren't convinced were necessarily poised to be the best designed or best suited for Western-style agriculture, it's just the scale of it. They began tinkering with that idea and prototyping over several years. They started in late 2017, really picked up some steam in 2018, and made the first few field trials and applications with growers in Florida and in Idaho, worked with an aerial applicator in Idaho and corn, learned a lot. And really got us to where we are today with our SC1, which is our production unit that's going out to commercial operations. Did you guys have to fight the sort of skepticism that I know existed around drones and ag for a while? Like it was the example of one of the early ag technologies that would have gone up the hype cycle and come down and piles of money maybe getting burned or things like that thrown around social media conferences, et cetera. What was that like for you guys in combating that narrative? Yeah, they did. It's really the best thing is just education, right? And there's there's so much misinformation and really folks that were trying to get into this market, this industry that weren't always honest. And one thing that I can say about Adam and the team, they've always been upfront and honest with the folks that we've dealt with. We understand intuitively that Agriculture is based on trust and relationships. And if you can't build trust, you're not going to go far. They've always taken an approach of under-promise and over-deliver. So certainly there were failures, always are. But we were very clear to identify up front that we are learning. And we want to learn what your pain points are, what your needs are, and what really works best. So we looked at it from three different scenarios. We looked at it from doing what some folks do currently, which is swarming, automating aircraft, air tractors and helicopters, or building something from the ground up. And what we found through that whole process was you can swarm, sure, but swarming may not be the answer. You incur a whole lot more overhead in both manpower and equipment than you would by just having a larger system. And then automating aircraft, you don't really alleviate a lot of the problems that exist in in manned aircraft. They're large. They require overflight. The things that the FAA are not looking too favorably on right now, right? They they don't want flying over public infrastructure roads and buildings and houses and things like that. It's going in that direction. But what we found was an efficiency in building and designing a system from the ground up scaled specifically for not just American agriculture, but Western agriculture. And those efficiencies just happen to be at 20 gallons and 50 gallons, 20 gallons for low volume, small acreage field crops, like corn, beans, peanuts, cotton, things like that you see in the the Midwest and the East Coast. 
And then 50 gallon, just basically a larger system designed for Broadacre, you know, through the upper Midwest and down through into Texas. And so when you like, it's interesting, the framework I was trying to draw while you were speaking there, Kevin, there's swarm and then retrofit existing, but there's almost two dimensions there. There's the form factor as in, is it small or large? And then the tech stack as in, do you do the full kit of movement and autonomy and payload and path planning and everything, or do you retrofit onto existing technology, break it down? So it sounds like you guys do smaller, but not tiny form factor and own the whole stack. Is that a fair summary? That is. Yeah, that's a great summary. So we own the full stack. The benefit of what we have is we know what the smaller systems are capable of and we know what their shortcomings are. So we can build something that is not only scalable to a 140-acre size farm, but we can also design the safety systems and avionics to overcome the challenges that those systems are currently seeing in the field. And so we've got a system that is designed and built in the United States with parts sourced from the United States. And if we can't get those parts built by us or sourced in the U.S., we source them from NATO countries in Europe. And, and is that emphasis important because of supply chain challenges or security concerns? It's all of the above. And we've heard numerous times from folks that they wish that there was an American system available, that they didn't have to rely on long supply chains, one, data privacy, which is certainly a concern for the Chinese systems, and uh, reliability. DJI, for instance, their predominant market is the hobby market, and they use hobby parts in building their agricultural drones. We do not. We use aviation-grade equipment. We designed our system to withstand dusty, dirty, sometimes muddy environments, and we fully expect that those systems are going to last much longer than a system that's built from plastic parts. Tell me about the business model. That would be another dimension where others have tried different things, selling the drone, spraying as a service, operator in the loop. How have you guys iterated and where have you landed on business model? Sure. So our mission, our why is we want to be able to provide every grower with access to full field, full volume, automated, reliable, precise, and repeatable aerial application. Whether or not they own it is neither here nor there. Not all growers own a large spray rig. Uh, they don't want to. They want somebody else to do it for them. Some want to own it themselves. So we've made the system simple and affordable. It's certainly not the price point of DJI, but again, you get what you pay for. We have made it intuitive enough that if you can work on a tractor or a spray rig, you can work on our system. And you don't need a pilot's license to fly it. A fully autonomous system, you do your mission planning up front, and 90% of the use cases are addressed by the time you get up to the field. It does everything itself, and the remote pilot effectively just becomes a loader at that point, making sure the system stays where it's supposed to. And so I want to go back to the partnership with Wilbur Ellis. How did that come about? Tell me a little bit more of the context. I know at the same time, I think FMC and Cavallo and a couple other corporates invested. Why Wilbur Ellis in terms of partnership? What did they see? What did you see? Give me a bit of the story. Yeah. So we've got FMC, Bayer, and we do have Cavallo. It's not just ag. We've also got tech 
there. But uh, Wilbur Ellis, they were important to us from the standpoint that we knew that we needed to partner with a large retailer um, and someone who, as they put it, they're the largest aerial applicator in North America. That was an important relationship for us to find and happy to have it with Wilbur Ellis. So we've partnered with someone on the the funding side and on the operational side, which does volumes for us in lending credibility to our system, but also the lessons that we can take from their knowledge and experience. We had a partnership with an aerial applicator in Idaho, but that was effectively, hey, can we spray these fields? Can we learn from you? This is on a much deeper level now. We are essentially working hand in hand with Wilbur Ellis in Salinas, California to, to make commercial full field chemical applications this summer in the vegetable market out there. Did the buying commercial partnership come before the investment or after? And were those two things linked in the negotiations or what can you share about that? Yeah, I can share. Wilbur Ellis, they've got different branches. They've got Cavallo, which is their venture capital arm. They've got chemical and they've got nutrition. And then they've got agribusiness all under the Wilbur Ellis corporate. Cavallo is a separate entity than agribusiness. And they were already pursuing an investment interest or rather doing their due diligence before the purchase agreement was signed. I think it was oh, a, about a year after the uh, investment from Cavallo came through that our team at Guardian was in a position from a regulatory perspective that the agribusiness side had decided that, hey, we're mature enough, but we've de-risked it enough that they were ready to move forward in a purchase agreement and an operational partnership at that point. And did you guys run parallel processes on the investment side? I imagine you're running a process of getting the round closed and who's going to lead, who's going to follow, all the Tetris that comes with that. And then on the commercial side, was it a similar search for who's the right sort of retail partner and running a process and landing with Wilbur Ellis? Or yeah, talk a little bit about how you strategically approach that. Yeah, thankfully, I knew a lot of the folks at Wilbur Ellis, benefit <laughs> of my time there. I knew Mike Wilbur. We had talked quite a lot. And from the agribusiness side, I knew all of the operations directors and Bill Kornmesser, who's now the VP and the president. So I knew who to talk to. I think it, it just turned out that it was easier because of the networking that existed. We still talk to all of the major ag retailers. It just takes a little bit longer, right, to build that trust with those folks that you haven't worked with yet. But think time is going to show that the industry is turning to this technology now. They're more accepting of it. What we are pursuing and hopefully we'll see more of from our competitors in the market is more field trials, more spray, drift analysis, deposition analysis, and communicating in a way that is impactful to the agribusiness community, rather than presenting the details that paint a better picture of their particular product or service. Yeah, which I mean, goes a bit to the investor narrative and the customer narrative. If they're the same entity, then maybe those narratives aren't that different. But I think that's a line some ag tech companies have had to walk in those dual communications challenges. And it is a challenge. Thankfully, we're 
we just closed our Series A for $20 million. We've got the, the FAA approval for commercial use nationwide and our Part 137. So we're no longer worried about those struggles. We just want to make sure that, one, first and foremost, that we're successful with Wilbur Ellis this summer, and two, that we're building that body of knowledge and the evidence that's impactful and it really begins to help those folks that have not yet come around understand that these machines can do everything that we say that they can do. It's a tool, just like any other tool, right? It's not wholesale replacement. We're not looking to do that. And I think that's been the narrative for too long. Folks are worried that it's going to replace their jobs or it's going to replace aircraft. Or We're not at a level right now where we're competing with an AT-802. And we're still not with one unit on a one-to-one basis meeting what helicopters do, but helicopters aren't everywhere and helicopters can't get to every field and aircraft, whether they're helicopters or fixed wing, probably shouldn't get into some fields, just trying to help de-risk and make things safer and better for everybody. Yeah. You mentioned a few things that you guys clearly get from the partnership. So credibility, knowledge and experience, obviously a customer, capital on the Cavallo side. What do you think they get from working with you? And do you know if they ran a process to look at competitors or other models? Yeah, How did they decide on their side? And what would they say they get from the partnership? Yeah, I know emphatically that they've looked at everybody (laughs) and they've dipped their toes in with some of the other folks. What they're getting from us is a system that's built in the U.S. and they're getting to lead the advent of this technology into U.S. agriculture. We certainly get a lot from that partnership, but Wilburillis is also, there's strategic benefit both from an investment and operational partnership standpoint. These machines for the first year and a half are only going to be operated by Wilbur Ellis, just by the volume of the contract that they entered into. So they'll have a pretty big head start on everybody else. Yeah, that's interesting. I think companies often on both sides of the table think that money is the most important thing that they're exchanging. And in our experience, it's actually third, fourth, fifth, seventh versus some of the knowledge and experience or distribution or credibility or some of the other benefits that come with a partnership like this in addition to the capital. It sounds like that was Absolutely. anything else you can say about the kind of terms of the deal exclusivity for a period or pricing or anything like that, that were key points of negotiation or lessons maybe that you learned in getting that deal over the line? I can't share specifics of the deal. But I can say that they put a deposit down on several units and they have a right of first refusal for many more with the option to purchase hundreds more. That makes sense. You mentioned Kevin that perception challenge and with a big company, they're often used to, if we're going to buy something, it's going to be robust, built, exists. We're going to buy a ton of them. We're going to invest in it. Whereas something like this is we're going to try and then maybe we'll get more and we're going to test and we're going to learn Culturally, that can be pretty tough. Any lessons or challenges there around taking them on the journey, the skills they might need, or the skills they're developing to be able to navigate that partnership? Yeah, it's it, that. that's a really interesting thing. And it's one of the things that, that we uh, ensure that, that all of our customers receive from us, right? There, there is a varying level of support based on the system that you buy. 
we want and we need to, to some degree, for our own credibility, need to ensure that that our customers have all of the information that they need and assistance to be successful. So that includes regulatory assistance. Even for companies like Wilbur Ellis, they have a lot of questions about how to structure their business and what's required so that they're crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. We help them through with that strategy. Ultimately, it's their own, but we walk them through the process. And it's why we have filed for all of the same approvals that every one of our customers will need so that we can go to them and say, hey, this is the application that you need for this to fly the aircraft. And then this is the application that you need to be able to operate for aerial spraying. And we set those things up so that by the time they take delivery, they have the regulatory approvals and all the individual training that they need so that they can just take their system and hit the field. They're full up and ready to go. There's a lot of back-end work and coordination for us to make sure that the customer is happy. That's what I do in customer relations. And the government side of my job is I do all of the regulatory. So I write all of the operations manuals and the con ops and maintenance manuals and interaction with the process for obtaining a 44807 and a Part 137 certificate so we can answer every single one of those questions and continue to provide the support even after the initial uh, approval and acceptance of those systems by the team, there are going to be additional things like, hey, I want to operate multiple systems at night. I want to fly extended visual line of sight. I want to be able to swarm systems, things like that. They're going to need that ongoing support and we're here to provide that. One of the things we wonder about is as these technologies come into the mainstream, are they just substitutions for how things work today and we do it with a drone instead of a spray rig? Or does the whole system change and look different because these technologies mean you can compete with someone else's margin, you need different skill sets, your business model evolves, like those kinds of system shifts. Are you guys seeing that? Is Wilbur Ellis seeing that? You can imagine working with a combination of ground-based autonomy and aerial autonomy and like the whole different kind of ways of managing some of these systems and production practices. Any vision for or early hints of what that future might look like? This system is purposefully designed modular using the existing industry equipment so that we can do exactly what needs to be done in Western agriculture, rather than saying, hey, we've got these systems, let's put some fan tip nozzles underneath the booms so that we can increase our spray swath. And turns out it doesn't really work the best. I think that we're going to find over time that certainly that approach will help us to be successful early on, but it's also important to understand how are we going to integrate these systems with existing fleet management software, right? So our software team is looking at not building a software system from the ground up that that manages an entire farm. We want to be a tool and we want to be easy. We're going to build the APIs to talk with existing fleet management software. So it's a buy and integrate with your existing setup and as little headache as possible. As far as adapting to practices in different markets, right? Because every market's got its own use case. Every grower has their own use case. 
that that's where the modularity comes in. We cannot identify every possible scenario that needs to be addressed. Not everybody needs fence row nozzles on the boom. Not everybody wants to use standard tips. Some folks want to use rotary atomizers. And I think that we're going to learn a lot in the next year and a half, two years, as we start rolling these systems out across different geographies and different crops and really improving those systems. So five years from now, the system might look the same, but I can tell you emphatically that it's going to perform very differently. And you can imagine other things too, like how much a retailer's business model shifts towards services or how much farmers are bringing agronomy in-house and tools like this enable them to do more of that rather than work with the sales agronomist. Or you can imagine shifts more broadly in how the agricultural system works. If you overlay trends like, I don't know, you tell me, consolidation, environmental pressures around use of inputs, just margin pressure generally. I could imagine technologies like this are a key to what a future business model might look like for different players. You're absolutely right. And we built a system that can paint the Mona Lisa in a field, but everybody wants a black canvas. <laughs> so, right, you go and you try and sell precision application to growers. And most growers don't actually want precision application because their margins are so low. They, they can't just jump and take a chance and not know that it's not going to work. I think that benefit we're going to realize over the next few years as we begin to see that these systems work, they can be precision. We use RTK, so we're talking centimeter level precision on where you want to put a product down, but we're also going to need to see labeling change. And the EPA is going to be integral in that. That's where Bayer comes in for us and being able to do those studies and those trials to understand, hey, a ground rig uses 15 to 20 gallons per acre of corn fungicide. A helicopter and an airplane uses two to three gallons of, of fungicide. Does this need to use two to three gallons? Can it use one gallon? And being able to prove that out over time is going to be hugely impactful, not just to the bottom line of growers, but also from an environmental perspective. What's the future of the Guardian journey look like with so many corporates on the cap table and those partnerships? Is there a ambition to re remain independent? Questions about acquisition? What can you say about that? I, we are not focused on acquisition, whatever, if it happens. We are looking at building something great and lasting for the industry. Very proud of what that I'm get to be a part of that. I, I don't know. Certainly it's been talked about before. Our system is green. Does that mean John Deere is going to come out and, and buy us? No, it doesn't. There are others out there too. CNH and Agco and there there are some great players out there. I hope nobody comes too <laughs> early. I just feel like there's so much more work. So much more good that we can do. And I'm not saying that they can't do good. Some things just tend to move slower sure. when you're working for a big corporation. Yeah. I like the speed and agility that, that we're working with right now. What advice would you have for other either startups or established players thinking about partnerships like you guys have formed on the investment and kind of customer side? Are there pitfalls or shortfalls to look out for, shortcuts you guys took? What advice would you have? I certainly wouldn't run afoul of the FAA. 
a standpoint of mine from the moment I came in, I said, look, we're not working in any gray areas. Can't do it, right? We have to establish credibility. We have to establish trust and not saying that the team was just saying, we're not going to cut corners here. It's going to take longer. We talked to the board about it. The board was good with it. And it did take a long time, but it paid off. I would encourage those folks that are looking at this right now to keep plugging at just keep pushing and don't give up that I think that the entire industry is going to benefit from not just one system, not just our system, multiple systems. These are tools. And while I am immensely proud of our team and what we're bringing to market right now, that isn't to say that it's in everybody's price point. And I understand that. I would also say network and talk to folks. I'm happy to talk to people. Adam is happy to talk to people. Jeff is happy. We meet people at Expos all the time that are asking questions. Folks that want to start their own custom application business, or we know the guys at PICA. We know the folks at Rantizo and all very good friends. And I think that the successes that we have seen have all come about because of the way that we approach other folks, talk to them, and are approachable in, in turn. One thing you said early on, Kevin, in our chat today was you want to underpromise and over-deliver to customers. I think in one of the press releases I read, you guys have a backlog of, I don't know, 100 orders or something. How do you kind of strike that balance of like, we want to underpromise and over-deliver, but you've got to be on a three-year waiting list? Is that ever a tension? Yeah, it's a challenge, right? We have a problem. It's a good problem to have. We've okay. got over 150 million in pre-orders. And thankfully, we've hired a very capable VP of manufacturing in March. He is very good at scaling manufacturing systems and helping companies transition from small scrappy startup to now I, we got to get these systems out and feel it to our customers. I, I wish I could say I've never had an uncomfortable conversation with a customer, <laughs> but it's hard to say, hey, you're on a wait list for 2024 and when can I get my unit? I'm, we're working on that. Please just let me, just give me some time here. You're not losing any space. You're not losing a place in line, but these things do take time and everybody has challenges, right? We couldn't tell when the FAA was going to give us our approvals. And thankfully now that they've come in, we can really start taking the lessons from the field with Wilbur Ellis to be able to manufacture those better systems for the customers that come after Reflecting on our conversation today, a few highlights around the possibilities of a relationship between startups and corporates really stood out to me. First, I appreciated what Kevin shared about determining that Wilbur Ellis was the right partner for Guardian. The relationship between the two organizations started out as primarily a financial one, but as it developed, it made sense for both companies to become more enmeshed. I think this path is becoming more common, but there's still a perception, especially in ag tech, that the most important way to support innovation is through direct financial investment. Capital is, of course, one tool, but the guidance and support that a longstanding organization can provide, whether that's as an advisor or customer, or just through knowledge of all the things that haven't worked, can be, in some cases, even more valuable than a check. And what's more, it's a two-way street. As Kevin highlighted, startups can be attractive places for interesting, effective, high-performance people. And those kinds of people and their good work can be accessed through collaborations with startups. Guardian has been able to support Wilbur Ellis in its navigation of FAA regulations around drone use, not only helping stay on the cutting edge of spraying technology, but helping mitigate the risk that comes along with that. 
The value of these efforts and of not having to invest in completing all this work internally adds some serious, though perhaps hard to quantify, value to this investment on the corporate side. Finally, I'm intrigued that it sounds like this isn't the last unconventional corporate partnership a Guardian is interested in establishing. Kevin mentioned near the end the value of working with a partner like Bayer to navigate the regulatory environment around pesticide application. And I think that makes a ton of sense, not just from a biz dev perspective, but from an environmental and compliance perspective as well. We've always said that the market for autonomy is far larger than just automating tasks that people do today. As new technologies, whether ground-based or aerial, proliferate, the whole crop protection ecosystem, from pesticides to spraying equipment to regulations to crop genetics, will change, and there will continue to be massive opportunities to create and capture value in new ways. But for now, that's it for another episode of AgTech So What. Thanks again to Kevin McDonald for joining us, and of course, thank you for listening. For more information on any of the resources mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, tenacious.ventures. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.